Hello and welcome to Slate Political Gab Fest. September 28th, 2023, the Donald Duck and the Seven Dwarves edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, of course, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Howdy, Emily. Howdy. Still having my brain messed with by mixing up Disney and Grimm's Fairy Tales. Or I guess just to Disney. Yeah, it's all Disney. And then, of course, there's John Dickerson of CBS Primetime, who is the Prince Charming, if we're going to do Disney's, or the Shrek of the Gabfest. Hello, John. Hi. I, I think I'd rather be Shrek. Shrek at heart, but um, then you get to look like Prince Charming. Is that possible? Oh, sure. <laughs> I'll take I'll take that. Yeah, no, that'd be nice. That'd be nice. Some sort of an AI c- confection where I get to be both. Sounds good. This week on the Gabfest, the state of the race. There was another Republican debate on Wednesday night. There was a shockingly bad poll for President Biden. And Donald Trump's numbers remain amazingly steady, even as he muses about executing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and has his business empire torn away from him for fraud. Boy. Then, will Democrats manage to shove indicted New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez out of office, or will he stay and haunt them with his gold bars and envelopes of ill-gotten cash? And then FTC chair Lena Khan accuses Amazon of all kinds of illegal monopolistic practices and brings a novel kind of lawsuit that could break up the company, but probably won't. But maybe it could. Who knows? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, we have a live show coming up, Madison, Wisconsin, Wednesday, October 25th at the Majestic Theater. I saw some photos of the Majestic Theater this week. It's so cool looking. Really great looking venue. Very excited to be there. We're going to be there on the 25th, Wednesday, as I said, at 7.30 p.m. You can go to slate.com slash Live. I think there are a few tickets left, so act soon because we're almost sold out. If it's Wednesday, a second debate, a second chance, as seven Republican presidential candidates take the stage, hoping to take some momentum away from the field's frontrunner, Donald Trump, who's the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library exists seemingly just to host Republican debates, and it got one on Wednesday night with seven candidates who are all struggling. And they gathered to shoutily and incoherently not really distance themselves from Trump, while Trump himself running 50, 40, 30 points ahead, running vastly ahead of all of them triumphantly avoided the debate and went to Michigan to talk at a non-union auto plant. So, John, this race is in a weird, and if you were a Democrat, kind of worrisome state. Trump is apparently untouchable. His numbers keep rising. Biden can't seem to catch a break. There was this funny line where Chris Christie referred to Trump as Donald Duck for ducking the debate. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that. No one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. I mean, there was a lot of har har, you know, in, I mean, it's always true in debates, right? The, everybody gets around the, the polished wood table at the uh, Fairfield Inn, you know, before the debate, and they cook up a line for the candidate. And nothing really is more desperate than the period of time between when former Vice President Mike Pence launches one of these bon mots into the world 
the period of time between when he does so and when people realize that they are supposed to laugh or respond in some way. I mean, the silence. Oh. Anyway, that was Chris Christie's line. As somebody put it, it's a seven-way race for second place. The overwhelming dynamic of the race is that there's no clear alternative to Donald Trump. And as long as that's the case, and that's certainly the case after this second debate, he's in good shape and the party is, you know, heading to make him the nominee. We should mention, as you did, just reiterate that this week he um, suggested his former Joint Chiefs chair be basically assassinated for taking actions that were approved by and initiated by the Defense Department and administration officials under Donald Trump. This wasn't some rogue action when he called the Chinese to to tell them that the U.S. wasn't going to engage in war after the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. It was a an administration-wide response. It's just that the president at the time was at odds with his own administration. The president also got a bad judgment from a from a judge who said what everybody who has known Donald Trump in public life knows, which is that he inflated and continues to inflate his success. It, that's This is no surprise. It's just a judge decided to say it with respect to this civil case. And he also made some other threats to one or various judges in the various cases against him. And he's the going away front runner. It's just these things need to be, I think, repeated because you know we one doesn't want to get kind of sleepy on what are extraordinary breaches with normal behavior. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the debate which was painful to watch Emily. I watched maybe half of it. It was really really unpleasant and shouty and kind of sad. It was a sad spectacle. That's not to say that there weren't candidates who did okay. Nikki Haley again seemed like an adult. Tim Scott seemed less corpse-like than he had last time. And DeSantis, DeSantis, I don't know. I can't say anything nice about DeSantis. Anyway, Emily, was there anything in the debate proper that made you feel optimistic about the state of the race, that made you feel, okay, we're having a good, valuable discussion here. This could change some dynamic. I mean, not really. I guess it's just weird to watch these seven people kind of scrabble at each other when they're not in a position to really make any kind of claim that they could actually be president. It just seems sort of strange. I mean, one of them is going to emerge as a second place finisher, I suppose. And it seems like, you know, all the people you mentioned could be alternatives. You could imagine them as plausible candidates. Partly, I appreciate how Haley, as the only woman on the stage, is really holding her own. But some of them, I thought, could they debate President Biden successfully? And like, sure. But it just seems like a sideshow. And the policy moves that they were making so often just return to a kind of, you know, fantasy about how the economy is supposed to work, where we just wave a magic wand and everything gets fixed. And I mean, I know that's like what these debates lend themselves to, but it just is so kind of enervating. I mean, obviously, it's my role in life to talk about how distant these contests are from any kind of rational way you would try to pick a person for this incredibly powerful and important job. And I just, while I was while I was watching, I mean, because this is not even for the, this is not even a contest for the job. This is a contest to get to see who might be in second place, who could then compete against the person who's the running away favorite in the party. And it, it's, it felt like you told seven people to scramble for the last half a bagel <laughs> at the breakfast bar. And that's how you're going to, and whoever gets there first, that's how you're going to determine, determine who's going to be president. It just was like when Nikki Haley is in a shouting match with Tim Scott about 
the curtains at the UN secretary's office. Like you've really gotten to a far place from the reality. Here's the argument for Ron DeSantis. If you're a Republican, there were a couple of times in the debate, and one time he did it particularly where he, well, where he said, like, you, co- you all can talk, but I took on the tough fights in Florida and won them, and I've politically changed the state. Democrats aren't competitive in the state anymore, all of which is true. And if you believe what Republicans say they believe, and that is an incredibly malleable thing, given how much like soft running wax, we've seen it to be in the Trump era, where on basically all of the main central points of what it used to mean to be a Republican have been turned on their head by Donald Trump. And that has only made him more popular in his party. Nevertheless, if you believe in what Republicans say they believe, Ron DeSantis has had considerable success implementing those things in Florida. So he doesn't just talk, he actually does the work he also has, you know, military experience and he served in Washington. So, John, let's move to a different subject. The Washington Post and ABC had a poll this week that has Democrats catatonically depressed. And the, the coverage of their own poll was hilarious because they kept referring to their own poll as an outlier. But what did the poll find? What parts of it should Democrats be worried about and what perhaps should they not be worried about? The poll found generally that basically Donald Trump led Joe Biden by nine points. And the reason the poll, I mean, it had a series of possible problems, coverage error, sampling error, non-response bias, measurement error, like a series of ways in which the poll was done that suggested that the overall findings were off. Also, when you do subgroup analysis of a sample that was as small as that was, you're talking about even smaller groups from which you're extrapolating these huge conclusions. The Generally, all the other polls show the race is pretty much tight. The race is pretty much even. And we should even we should also just kind of dunk on even that last sentence, which is we're a long way away from the actual election. And, you know, just stop it. By which I mean, like these horse race polls at this point are of limited utility. However, the reason Democrats are unsettled is that they have flaws with their likely nominee, the incumbent president, which is that despite improvement in the economy, people still grade the president very poorly on the question of the economy. The border is a complex problem that is not getting better, it's getting worse. And the president doesn't have a great answer for that. And the president's age is an issue that is easy to cover and causes freakouts in the Republican Party. And there's not a good answer from the president's folks about this, which is like, age is just a number and he's wise. And wait a minute. Oh my God. They haven't said what should be easy for them to say, which is he's incredibly talented. And wow, he picked an amazing vice president who could handle things in a second and be herself a great president if anything awful should happen. And since they can't say all that, and it's really easy to cover the age issue, and it's really easy to talk about the age issue, and the age issue is a real issue, even though it's not covered the way it should be, but all of which is a problem which gives people uh, all this free-floating angst which attaches to any poll like this. Oh, one thing I'd also like to correct, by the way, is that you said earlier, David, for Democrats, it's bad that there's no alternative to Donald Trump. I see what you're saying, except on the other hand, you could make a very strong case that the best candidate for Donald, for Joe Biden to run against is Donald Trump. Yes. any uh, Anyone else in that field would probably beat Biden. 
Emily, I just want to go back to to one thing which which has got me really perplexed, which is that it's safe to say that if Ronald Reagan or Mitt Romney or John McCain had said what Donald Trump did about Mark Milley, it would have been a national scandal. They would have apologized. They would have been shamed. They probably would have been out of a race. Yet this story was barely news. The news from Cassidy Hutchinson's book about all the different horrifying ways in which Trump and his lackeys were trying to corrupt the country and overturn the election, that came out this week. Again, any other candidate, this would be shocking, disqualifying. Trump, a judge, effectively declared Trump's entire business a fraud and stripped control of his business from him this week. Any other candidate be disqualifying. These are all stories. They are. It's not that there's no coverage. It's just that it's apparently there is no ability to affect the narrative about Donald Trump in any way that anyone can see. So what what is to be done? What is the media to do about it? How, what is the Democratic Party, if they're trying to defeat him, to do about it? Yeah. I mean, I guess the way I think about this is that if you're a candidate and you're basically running your campaign like a placid sea, right? Like everything's basically still. And then someone throws a big rock in. Everyone can see all the waves that emanate from that rock. And it's a big story and you have to answer for it. And you're someone who feels shame and abides by the normal rules of politics. But if your campaign is like an enormous squall in which waves are being whipped up all the time by you very deliberately, then any one additional wave, all that froth is just sort of part of the whole and you don't see it and you're not answerable for it. And I do think that part of the dilemma here is the media, like the Millie story. So if that had been covered as huge news, would that have also been its own kind of mistake? Because then you're sort of gawking at this like scary thing. Yes. I mean, it says something about Donald Trump that is alarming about someone who wants to be, again, president of the United States. But it's not really new information that he threatens and bullies people like that online. He's not doing anything about it. So overcovering it also would be a mistake. And I guess I just, and I've been noticing this, you know, in some of the television coverage, forgive me, John, there's this tension that as Trump emerges as really the front runner and the likely Republican candidate, there's an obligation on the part of the media to cover him like a politician because he appears to be the choice of one of America's two major parties. On the other hand, he is not normal. There's nothing normal about, you know, playing footsie with the idea of executing the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And that's, I mean, obviously just like exhibit number one million and three of Donald Trump not normalness. And I don't know what we're going to do about that. It's going to be really hard because I think when the mainstream media seems to be pitting itself against him, it often plays to his favor. Then we become the enemy. He's going to bat against us when the truth is we also have an obligation to try to cover him fairly. We're not running against him. And I don't know. I think, I mean, I think there are indications that, you know, Many reporters and editors and outlets have gotten smarter about this, but it is a fundamental dilemma that I feel like I, I personally would like to attend a whole like day's worth of seminar about. Uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly wrestle with this. And when I talked to Major Garrett about it on our air the other night, we were both trying to tend to all of the questions and points that you made, Emily, which is not to take the bait, not to platform madness. On the other hand, there is a nesting doll kind of madness in this Millie thing, which is important. I think one of the key ways to talk about it is to explain why this is 
so not normal. In other words, not to just say, oh, mm-hmm. it's not normal, and then leave it at that. I mean, Millie, the, the incident at state at, at, at issue here was how does the apparatus of government respond to a threat from the head of government? And that's what was taking place. On the attacks of January 6th, you had up and down the government, all Republican leaders, the leaders of the Republicans in the House, the Senate leader of the Republicans, and the apparatus of the Pentagon were trying to respond to the fact that the sitting president of the United States was attacking his own government and that it was the the kind of pinnacle moment of a two-month effort in which he had tried every possible way to overturn a free and fair election, and that things had gotten to such a pass that the Secretary of Defense asked the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who had a good working relationship with the Chinese military apparatus, to call them and let them know that the president had gone so rogue that that the Chinese might think that he would launch a war against them. And the reason that the Secretary of Defense thought that might be the case is that the president's rogueness was not just everything he'd been doing up until January 6th and everything he had not done in response to January 6th, but that he was doing weird things about like, signing orders and suggesting things about Afghanistan, which suggested that he was going to use the powers of the office and also things he'd said about Iran, use the powers of the office in furtherance of this kind of desperate act to stay in office. And that it, the thing, things had gotten to that pass. And that that isn't just about the past, that it is about the future, because this same person is now leading the party. And that this isn't just about that person. It's about the response of the people inside of the party, that there is no longer a limiting within the Republican Party or the apparatus of government, that should he be in office again, the kind of blind eyeing to his behavior is now priced in, baked in a part of the party that he is a part of. So if he were to gain office again, they would say all of this is okay behavior. And that to try to explain that. And the problem with explaining that is that when you do, people give you the like, hurry up, stop <laughs> talking David thing is as David is doing do. now. And that's dangerous. And Donald Trump knows that, which is like, oh, you go on too long. It's boring. Let's move on. Well, that's what makes him that president. David Plotz is the danger to the republic. Wait, so I'm I'm the reason he's going to be president? Yes. <laughs> because 100%, I'm- 100%. Because to explain why in all the ways in which this is dangerous People are like, oh, yeah, it's dangerous. Okay, it's dangerous. Then suddenly he's president again. I mean, it's, it's just it's what oh, it is. No, 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 I, no. I don't, but I disagree with your premise, which is that the explanation that is an extensive explanation is in some ways satisfying. It's intellectually right. What you just said is grounded and intelligent. But what? Where's the? where's the proof or even the slightest bit of evidence that deters the Republican Party from supporting him that changes the mind of Republican voters or that galvanizes Democratic voters to come out and vote against him. I don't know that what you've done with a longer explanation. Oh, but we have to try. We have to try. It's our obligation to try, right? And I mean, we're not talking to hardcore, or actually, John is talking to hardcore Republican voters. But even if those people aren't going to change their mind, there are people who are not sold and are not sure. And those are the people who are probably going to determine the election if the evenly split polls are correct. And I I was just answering Emily's conundrum, which is the right one, which is, how do you cover this? And I think the way you cover it is to go beyond just saying this is a norm-breaking thing. You have to explain why the norm is broken and why it's so dangerous, not in the past, but in the future. 
And so the only way you can do that is by going on that admittedly long and maybe even boring explanation of all the ways in which this ticks the boxes of madness. And not just like hyperbolic madness, but madness that was so out of bounds that the apparatus of government, the Trump government, said it must be stopped and that that is going to happen again. And everybody's eyes are wide open in the party that's nominating it. Can I offer one other sort of antidote? The legal system. So right now, one heartening element of this whole debate to me is that if you look at these court cases and what we're learning, and this is certainly true of this ruling about fraud this week, this is like the truth-seeking function of the legal system. Like people under oath are more likely to tell the truth when they face consequences in court. They, you know, like there is a sort of come to truth moment and fact finding has a kind of possibility that it doesn't in the swirl of, you know, media coverage where you can lie all you want. And yes, like maybe someone will fact check you later, but it doesn't seem to really take or really have any impact. So, you know, if we can cover the legal system's findings with, you know, rigor and real attention, maybe that will have some kind of effect. The incandescent hatred that all of the people on stage have for Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, it's almost <laughs> its own, it's almost its Super own renewable true. resource. The energy, the energy that they direct. As he like grins away. <laughs> it's totally true. And he's like so sweet. And then when Nikki Haley said, when you talk, I get dumber, was really that was the my favorite moment, I think. This is infuriating because TikTok <laughs> is one of the most dangerous social media apps yes, that is. we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say <laughs> because I can't believe they hear I want to give a huge thanks to our Slate Plus listeners. Because of listeners like you, we have been able to keep doing the GabFest for low these many years. And you get great stuff for your subscription, bonus segments, on every episode, special discounts to our live shows, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, a lot more. This week, our Slate Plus segment is going to be about the government shutdown. There's so much news this week that uh, we aren't dealing with it in the main body of the show, so we're going to do a Slate Plus segment about it. So if you're a member, again, thank you and enjoy that segment. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. What is bribery anymore? Robert Menendez, something almost charming about his brazenness, not really, but it's so brazen that it's it's almost <laughs> endearing. The Democratic senator from New Jersey repeatedly accused of corruption in recent years and put on trial is resisting calls to resign after the Biden Justice Department accused him and his wife and several others of an elaborate scheme to benefit themselves, to help the Egyptian government, to twist the legal system, to protect their allies and funders from prosecution. Menendez and his wife allegedly used their position to get gold bars, which I love the idea of gold bars, envelopes of cash, a luxury car, and a no-show job in exchange for doing various favors. So what are the crimes that he is accused of committing, Emily? And let's definitely get to the question about whether you can even bribe a public official anymore, if, it's e if there is even bribery anymore, because that is 
what I'm most interested in. Yes, there is still bribery. And if anyone deserves to be convicted of it, at least based on these allegations, it looks like it is Senator Menendez. There are three charges here. Conspiracy to commit bribery, conspiracy to commit honest services wire fraud, and conspiracy to commit extortion under the color of official right, which means that you obtain property from another person with his consent under color of official right, which like basically translates into a quid pro quo or agreeing to the quo after the quid, right? You get something and you're a politician and you agree to do something for that other person because of the gift that you got. And I don't think this is endearing behavior, but it is super old school. And they do seem to have reams of evidence, including a lot of text messages, many of them from Menendez's wife that look like total quid pro quo. So, yes, it is true that the Supreme Court has narrowed the definition of bribery. I think those rulings are really misguided. The theory behind them is that things like taking a meeting or making a phone call are just the normal workings of government and should not themselves be the kind of official act that the federal bribery statute has in mind. But I think what you see here, if the prosecutors can prove the facts in the indictments, and like I said, it seems like they can, you don't just see people having meetings and taking phone calls, you see them getting stuff and giving stuff. And there were like clear implications, clear, it looks like clear benefits. So I think Menendez is in big trouble, legally speaking. I mean, David loves the gold bars. I love the getting picked up at the airport by one of the people involved in the highly detailed indictment, and then going home and Googling how much is a gold bar worth? Kilo, I mean, a kilo. Oh, the gold bar that still has the fingerprints of the guy on it. I mean, it's like yeah. the clownishness as laid out in the, it's it's very serious and it's not, you know, you, the serious national security issues are at stake here. But I mean, the clownishness is at times quite amazing. I mean, that's all on the quid side of the equation, right? That's all the stuff Menendez and his wife got. The question is, what can the prosecutors prove about what they did for this Egyptian businessman and his associates? And it doesn't seem like that's a big heavy lift for them either, right? Because Menendez was, you know, handing over sensitive information about the American embassy in Egypt. He seemed to try to interfere in a potential federal prosecution of one of these guys. Like, it just doesn't seem hard. So can we just give people a little bit of the context? So the Supreme Court in the case against former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, the Supreme Court led by Justice John Roberts basically said that while McDonnell had accepted all kinds of gifts and made phone calls on behalf of the givers, that nothing he did was an official act. So, I mean, A, that sets an incredibly high bar for corruption. Yeah, that's why I think it's misguided. I don't think it should be so hard to prove corruption. But what are the... official acts that Menendez might have committed. I mean, you're, you're a senator. You can actually be part of being a senator. A great defense in a bribery case is that if you're a senator, you actually don't have any power to do anything, really. I mean, you are just a speaker. You do speak a lot. Yeah, but he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And so he seemed to have used his power over military sales. He intervened on behalf of Egypt when they were worried about their aid because of, you know, human rights violations. And then there's this whole thing about the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey, where it seems like he was making calls discouraging a prosecution. You don't have to prove that the prosecution actually unraveled because of Menendez interfering. You just have to prove that he was trying to do something, that there was an agreement to use his official power on behalf of someone in exchange for gifts. Is the line here between 
I believe in a bunch of stuff. And, oh, hey, this guy gives me money because we believe in the same things and that's a part of government. Or, hey, this guy gives me a bunch of money and whoop, now suddenly I'm on the phone with the U.S. Attorney's Office telling them they should promote or or put in place a, another kind of U.S. attorney who's going to be more favorable in view, reviewing this case, which is a case about somebody who's given me a bunch of money. That seems to be more you know, specific directed behavior that's not the kind of behavior I would have engaged in anyway, regardless of how much money I'm getting from somebody. A hundred percent. And it's hard to say like, oh, I campaigned on this particular prosecutor being in office as opposed to someone else. Like it's incredibly (laughs) specific, just like you said. And it seems like it's really hard to say this is my ideological commitment. I do think that Bob Menendez's key issue is that he really wanted halal certification in the U.S. <laughs> to be controlled by just one, one, one entity. Really good. But that is very important just for the really good for consumers of, of halal meat to have a monopolistic uh, <laughs> control over certification. Super. John Menendez was put on trial for an entirely different set of bribery and corruption charges about six years ago. It was a mistrial, and, and then the Justice Department declined to re-prosecute. Last time, Democrats stood shoulder to shoulder with him for the most part because Chris Christie, a Republican, was the governor of New Jersey and would have appointed his replacement. This time, not so much. Almost every senator and most of the public officials in New Jersey have said he should resign. Why have they turned on him? And do you think if he doesn't want to resign, there's any chance he's not going to resign? Yeah, where you you stand depends on where you sit. By the way, I just want to call out David Plotz, who is one of the most precise writers and talkers and thinkers, using the cliche stands shoulder to shoulder, which is like the absolute on the save get key of the like first speechwriter. I mean, I just like I can't believe I those like words came out of your mouth. Cliches are still okay. It's just written cliches are not. Yes. And also, I'm going to decide that yes. he used it ironically, which is because he's speaking in voice of like of the political class. But it just it's just like I couldn't I could almost not imagine hearing it from David Plotz. So I responded with where you stand. It depends on where you sit, which yeah. is itself a cliche, <laughs> which is <laughs> didn't want to say anything. Is, and but. yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, I'm not. I'm, 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 come on. I'm joining in the fun. Um, it, the reason is because the last time Menendez was in the pickle, Chris Christie was the governor of New Jersey and would have appointed his replacement. And so nearly every Democratic figure now, though, has called for in the, I mean, has called for him to resign. You've got 30 or so senators. It's probably more by now. You've got Cory Booker, the other Democratic senator from New Jersey. The governor of New Jersey is now a Democrat, though. And and that governor, Phil Murphy, has called for him to resign and would would name his replacement. I also think there's an interesting little sideshow, not a sideshow, maybe it's maybe it's quite important, is that one of the things Menendez has said is that this is there is some sort of um, bias here because uh, because of his Cuban heritage, and you had Alex, you know, you've you've now had various different members of Congress who uh, are of Hispanic descent co- come out and say he should resign, and that that is not an issue here, which I think is probably not only important politically in general, but also specifically politically bad for him that that he's Pete Aguilar, of course, the chair of the House Democratic Caucus, the most I think the highest ranking Latino in Congress saying he should step down. So that's also important. The highest ranking member of the Senate is Durbin, who's called for him to step down. Schumer has not, although Schumer said there's very high standard of behavior for senators and Menendez behavior all falls under that. 
I mean, Schumer should just call for him to step down. I think another reason why Democrats are doing this is that they're trying to make a clean difference between them and the corruption swirling around Donald Trump. Like in a world in which, you know, you have Trump stripped of a lot of his businesses and, you know, so many other allegations surrounding him and his family and a world in which Republicans are trying to make lots of the Hunter Biden story, although we should also note that Hunter Biden actually did get indicted last week. You know, you want to just differentiate yourself and separate yourself from anything that looks like dirty and corrupt. And I mean, I just this indictment is really damning. But do you guys think that he if he does not want to go, is there any mechanism that gets him to go other than losing in the Democratic primary next year? No. And I wonder if he will definitively lose in a Democratic primary. That to me is really interesting. I mean, they have to put a lot of money into whoever. Well, I would think that the Democrats would put a lot of money into whoever his best challenger is because taking him out would be important. And you would hope that his donors would flee. But who knows? When you have the whole establishment of the, I mean, you know, when you have the governor against you and stuff, that'll be a problem in a campaign. We should note he has like 16 months left to serve, right? He's up for election next year. So this isn't like an endless, it's not going to go on forever. And the Senate could expel him. But they haven't done that since like the Civil War or something. It's a long time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's very, it's it's been a minute. It only happened 15 times in uh, Senate history. Well, I also don't think that the Senate should expel somebody based on an indictment before they've got a trial. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, agree. Totally, totally, totally. I'm just saying down the road, if more stuff comes out and, and there's a conviction or something, it could happen. Lena Khan, the shockingly young, brilliant, and ambitious chair of the Federal Trade Commission, has filed the suit that everyone has been expecting since she was appointed by Biden and approved by the Senate. Khan, who made her name as a student, as a student, in her mid-late 20s, with a novel analysis of why Amazon is harmful, has now filed a suit accusing Amazon of a variety of illegal monopolistic practices that collectively, she claims, drive up prices for consumers and harm small businesses in the Amazon ecosystem. If it's successful, and that is such a long shot, the suit could cause the breakup of Amazon. Emily, antitrust jurisprudence is kind of at a low ebb. And the only way in recent years to get a legal judgment against a monopolist has been to show that it has raised consumer prices. Uh, Otherwise, almost no one's winning a case. Khan is making a fascinating series of interrelated arguments, which do touch the consumer price issue, but that's in no sense all of it. So what is she saying about Amazon? Well, what she's saying about Amazon is that if you are a seller who uses Amazon to sell your wares, which like everybody who sells stuff online basically has to do because they are such a huge monopolistic presence, you end up giving a lot of your revenue over to Amazon because Amazon uses its power as a platform and as itself a seller of things to force you to hand over a lot of money. There are the fees for, you know, being on the particular marketplace platform. There's the fact that you get benefits for using Amazon's fulfillment service. And if you don't use it, you get penalized. There's like how all the ads work on Amazon, the search ads, and how you have to fork over money for that. There's Amazon's buy box. There's just this way in which 
Amazon is playing all these different roles, right? This is a point Elizabeth Warren has made for a long time that they're not just the platform making money from being the platform. They're also what's called a horizontal kind of monopoly where you have these other sorts of services and ways in which you control the market. And then that forces the people who basically have to use you to give you a lot of the money they're making. That's the basic argument. And on the consumer price issue, I think one of the, there is this interesting claim about consumer prices. And one of the ways that FTC says that consumer prices are being affected is that Amazon essentially requires anyone selling in their marketplace to have the lowest offered price. So you have to agree not to offer lower prices elsewhere, which effectively raises prices. Because if you, if you're selling on Amazon at $4, you can't go sell on other pl- another platform whatever some other platform we don't for, even know the for name 350. of <laughs> right and and so those those competitors are not basically allowed to compete with Amazon on price because any business that's doing business on Amazon has to keep that price at $4 and so that that company that wants to offer it at 350 elsewhere cannot do it and therefore the price is 4 instead of 350 yeah and also all these fees and services and the kinds of agreements i was talking about also have the function of raising price because they're basically rent they're not creating value they're things that are going to end up being passed along to the consumer though i think there is something from a consumer point of view sort of counterintuitive about this because we all use Amazon. We see the lower prices or the incredible convenience and we think like, but this is super, super useful to us. And that is a problem for Lena Khan's theory. However, I think it's so important that she's making this argument in this case, in the case against Meta slash Facebook and the Justice Department is making this argument in its case against Google. Basically, they're all trying to change the basic limitation of antitrust law. So the Sherman Act, which is the foundation of antitrust law and dates from the late 19th century, does not say that the only kind of monopolistic practice we care about is one that affects consumer prices. That is not in the law. That is a kind of theory, a limitation on antitrust law that comes from the 1980s that the courts adopted. And There's a lot of reason to think, based on work from economists since then, that that is not a good way to think about limiting antitrust law, that actually antitrust law should affect the ramifications of a monopoly on workers or on sellers, on third-party sellers in the Amazon case. And so Lena Khan is really committed to that principle. And in some sense, I don't think the right test is whether she wins all these cases. Like, yes, sure, that's the gold crown. But I think, honestly... Sometimes you just bring a case, you can actually change the practices of a company because they can see the attention, they can see the heat they're getting from government investigators, and they start to change what they're doing around the margins. We don't need to break up Amazon or Google or maybe even Meta, though that one is really tempting, in order to have some remedies here. You can also just sort of change the way these companies actually function, the kinds of rents they seek, and also the public conversation about antitrust law. That's what makes this so incredibly interesting to me, because they're, what Khan is trying to do, and she tried to do this, and she did this in the famous article about Amazon that made her famous as a student, as a law student, and then is one of the reasons, if not the reason, that Joe Biden picked her, is making the case, a kind of old-fashioned case. Her piece written on Amazon was based on going back into the history of antitrust law in the Gilded Age and the power that those Gilded Age trusts used to to keep their power and basically arguing that's what Amazon was. And so that it's she's having to shift the mindset of the judges who will look at these cases 
and say, you're looking at it wrong, Amazon's defense will be, we're delivering a better experience for users, and that's the only way you should evaluate these claims. She's saying, no, you've got to go back and evaluate them more consistently with the original view of antitrust law. And so she's got to change the mindset of the of the judiciary that will adjudicate these claims in order to then win in that new uh, in that new mindset. I mean, I think it's also important to say that if you're a consumer who values Amazon for its convenience and its seemingly low prices, it doesn't mean it can't be better. It doesn't mean that like it's great that half of the revenue that you're paying to whoever is selling you this product, this third party seller, is actually going to Amazon. And so many of these cases, I mean, or at least in the Google case and in the Amazon case, I'm less familiar with whether this applies to Meta. It's, it really does make you harken back to the kind of old railroad situation where you have a railroad, you have a private railroad that's built with the help of the public that's built this railroad. And it is the essentially the only way you can get something from one place to another efficiently. And the railroad having built this monopoly for itself can then do all sorts of things to the shippers on that railroad, to the people who need that railroad for commerce. And the remedies for those people who need to get their product to market are so limited. And this is the situation we find ourselves in with Google. It's with sort of search and advertising on digitally. Like they have so much of that that you can't go anywhere else to get that service. And with Amazon, it's this selling things online. You cannot, you simply cannot reach the market without going through the Amazon ecosystem. And so once you, once you have this thing, which is it's almost a it's almost like a public it is a, effectively a public good when you get to be that big and have that much dominance you are a, supplying a public good the public good is the marketplace the public good is the is that digital marketplace for products in the same way the railroad was really a public effectively a public good and so it does seem like there has to be some form of control to prevent you from screwing with everybody but i i agree emily like the big problem with this case is going to be the fact that consumers are very happy with Amazon. And it's not just consumers are very happy with Amazon. There are all these people who've started small businesses that are Amazon dependent, and they may have problems with Amazon. They may not like some of Amazon's policies. But the fact is, there are millions and millions and millions of people and small businesses that are doing business with Amazon. They've chosen to do business with Amazon. No one is forcing them to do business Mm, with Amazon. But go back to your premise. They're not really choosing. If you want to sell stuff online, you don't really have a choice. And I I mean, I have a couple of friends who sell stuff on Amazon and they like have complained vociferously for years about exactly these kinds of practices. Yes, they're dependent, but they don't feel like they're being well treated or fairly treated. No, no, I, I agree with that. But I'm saying like they are not literally required to sell products on Amazon. They could not have a they could not do business. They could not have their business. Or they could say, like, oh, I'm just going to sell artisanally on my website. It would be a bad situation. That's not good for the economy. But it's not, they're not literally compelled. Well, yes, of course you're right about that. But that's not the government's problem, right? That's not the FTC's problem. The FTC's problem is can we get the judiciary to think in a broader and honestly more modern way about what antitrust law should address? I mean, let's also say here that it would be cleaner if Congress would get in and pass some new legislation. Like we're back to a problem we often have in this domain where we're talking about statutes that passed many years ago, in this case in 1890, and we're trying to use them to address these problems a century and more later for which they're like an okay fit. I mean, honestly, when you look back at the text of the Sherman Act, like it seems fine, but it's not on point directly because it wasn't written for this particular dilemma. And, you know, that would be a cleaner solution. 
I mean, there is one of the things that will be puzzled out here is is the FTC is is essentially saying to these small businesses, I mean, they're trying to say, we need a, a competitive environment in which small businesses can thrive. And what David's saying is that some of those small businesses are thriving. And while one of the, I assume, arguments from Amazon will be, yeah, they may have complaints, but like, they're thriving. And the complaints they have are like, everybody has complaints in life, that, that the complaints are not so core to a competitive environment that they are proof that the environment is not competitive. Right, and Amazon's also going to say, look at all the benefit we're providing to consumers, and that's what antitrust law has been focused on. That's their like very straight-up-the-middle argument. But let's not lose sight of like the problem with monopolies is that they concentrate too much power. They do what David was saying. The trust busting of the railroads in the Gilded Age was because inevitably when you're a corporation supplying what should be a public good, you start to squeeze everybody because you can, because you can make more money. And like that is the problem with concentrating economic power in a monopolistic business. I was at Microsoft in the during the Microsoft antitrust trial in the late 90s, I guess. And it's clear like that that trial, which no one really won, but the government won. Because even though it didn't really win on the on the merits, what it did is it slowed Microsoft down. It made Microsoft cautious. It distracted Microsoft. And what that did was it created space for companies, including Amazon, to rise up and start to hive off pieces of business that Microsoft otherwise might have dominated. And so, so I suspect that if you are a realist in this and you are an Amazon critic, what you hope is that what this is, is a, is just a roadblock for Amazon that creates enough distraction and delay that it just opens fields, opens fields for others. Yeah. That's what I meant earlier about how just bringing this case can have an impact. And Microsoft is like absolutely exhibit A for that. And it was good for American innovation and for the world economy that that kind of breakup and that challenge happened. And I think that's important politically in the evaluation of Lena Khan, who has lost some of these cases and won't say it out loud, I don't think anymore, because I interviewed her and she wouldn't. But is to your point, Emily, which is she has said before, which is losing is okay if it changes behavior. But I, she can't say that now because Congress, oh, who gives money to her agency, is like, wait a minute, your record here is not good and we shouldn't give you money and it means you're you're trying to do things that are crazy. Yeah, she should not say that now in her position, but it could still be true. Yeah, totally. Before we get to cocktail chatter, actually, just a note, coming up in our GabFest Reads next month, I talk about a great new memoir about working at Amazon. And so that GabFest Reads is not out yet, but stay tuned for that really, really good book called Exit Interview. But you do have a GabFest Reads in your feed, dear ones, which is that Emily talked to Zadie Smith about her new novel, which I'm super excited to read. And check that out in your feed. When did it drop? I think last weekend, right, Emily? Yes. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you have finished talking to Zadie Smith, Emily, and are just boozing it up with her, what are you going to be chattering about? I have a very slate-centric chatter today. There's a recent episode of This American Life called The Call, which I thought was just amazing, so moving and memorable, such difficult material. And the creator of this episode, the journalist behind it is Mary Harris, who is, of course, the host of Slate's daily podcast, What Next? And I just thought Mary did a phenomenal job with this 
material and the connections among the characters. It's about a hotline called Never Use Alone for people who use drugs, and I just got so much out of it. And then the second podcast I wanted to recommend is a new show from a podcast that healthcare workers tell stories on. The overall title of the podcast is The Nocturnist, and this is a season on post-Roe America that started with an episode about how healthcare workers and abortion providers responded when the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And Alison Block, who's the creator of this post-Roe America podcast, came on Dahlia Lithwick's show, Amicus, to talk about the podcast. Anyway, you can find The Nocturnist wherever you listen to podcasts. And again, this season is called Post-Roe America. JD, what's your chatter? My chatter, it's a multifaceted chatter. My chatter starts with congratulations to the uh, my colleagues at Sunday Morning. They just won an Emmy for Outstanding News Program, so that's awesome for them. But my actual chatter is the conversation I had with Jen Easterly, who is the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, known as CISA. And the conversation I had with her was they put out a public service announcement that's a part of a cybersecurity awareness campaign they're doing because, you know, we are all connected to the nervous system of technology. And not only are we all vulnerable to malware attacks and um, ransomware attacks, but malevolent actors in China and Russia can get into our networks through the weakest link, which is often just us regular people. But the most interesting thing she said, in addition to freaking me out about all the various threats was the kind of psychological resilience she saw and has seen in Ukraine to cyber attacks. And it goes like this. The Chinese are attacking not just hospitals and rural areas and even school districts and all of that. They are planning if it got to be a hot war in Taiwan or any other effort that the Chinese were involved in to sow discord in American society. And in so doing, and the Russians did this with the 2016 election, which is basically to poke at our underlying debates and our basically instinct to freak out and mistrust and become societally unstable when we are challenged. And she said one of the things she noticed in Ukraine was the resilience of the people to not freak out in moments that, you know, in their case, really would require freaking out and that that mental stability, the the sturdiness of their software in their heads has made them resistant to some of the kinds of attacks that the Russians have launched that are not just kinetic, but that are also, you know, these attempts to create and sow discord in society. And so basically, it's an argument for all of us to somehow figure out how to chill out or at least be able to continue to operate when we have these challenges to our society, not to blow them off, but to just toughen up a little in preparation for what will be undoubtedly attempts to attack um, our society even further. Well, you can't toughen up for the chatter I'm about to tell you about. The chatter I'm about to tell you about, it's really got me depressed. And it's going to sound silly, but I'm really depressed. So there was a study that came out this week in Nature Geoscience. John knows where I'm going. <laughs> And it is about what's going to happen to the earth in 250 million years. I've always been resigned to the fact that in some billions of years, the earth is going to be swallowed by the sun. No big deal. Whatever. I'll be long gone. In 250 million years, which it's not tomorrow, but it's not that long. We're totally screwed because what's going to happen is 
all of the continents are going to come back together. They're going to form a new supercontinent called Pangaea Ultima. And the act of all those continents coming back together will be to make the earth uninhabitable for mammals because there are going to be so many volcanoes erupting all the time, throwing toxic gases and creating much more CO2. The fact of the huge continent creates these vast internal areas on big continents, which are basically uninhabitable because they get too hot. And overall, the temperature of the earth is going to be about 120 degrees. And it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be a hellscape. And mammals will not be able to survive. We will have had to have gotten off this planet. Oh, also the sun will be shining 3% brighter than it does today because of that's what happens as stars age. And so that will also increase the temperature. And it's just, it's depresses me. I've, it's depressing. Don't you think that there will be lots of satisfactory developments in humankind, mostly initiated by keeping books off of shelves at certain libraries that will, that will uh, create the solutions to these problems. And well, they, all they be fine a- about asked it. about where, what about humans in 250 years? The author said they might find ways to adapt to their new environment, such as by only being active at night or living in caves. <laughs> No, no, we're all going to be living on whatever the names of those gigantic Earth-like planets are that are 19 solar systems away. We will have found a way to get there. That's a classic. AI is going to take care of a lot of this stuff. Listeners, uh, you've got chatters. I I hope not nearly as as gloomy as mine. Please email your great chatters to us at gabfestatslate.com. So many good ones came in this week. I had a real fun time reading through them. And our listener chatter this week is Kevin McEvely. Hi, GabFest listeners. This is Kevin McEvely from New York City. My chatter is about a recent essay in the New York Times titled, The Story of Our Universe May Be Starting to Unravel. Written by two physicists, the piece talks about how the James Webb Space Telescope is accelerating the need to examine long underlying theories about the universe and time. Scientists believe new information from Webb would help resolve some data discrepancies about a foundational theory known as the Hubble Constant, but the opposite has happened. The authors believe a revolution similar to efforts by Copernicus, Darwin, and Einstein might be required to help tell the story of our universe and potential multiverses. The article provides a concise explanation of key points and makes physics approachable for everyone, including those of us who barely managed to get through high school physics class. That's our show for today. The GapFest is produced today by Jared Downing. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. Please email your chatter to us at gabfest at slate.com. And please come to our live show in Madison. Go to slate.com slash gabfestlive to get tickets on October 25th. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. There is a shutdown, government shutdown coming this weekend. You know, I live in Washington. It's going to mean the museums are going to be closed. That's that's always the big one. Lots of people will be not working. All my government colleagues will be not working. But it's just like a really bad situation. There are two different conversations that seem to be happening. In the Senate, there's a relatively normal reality-based conversation that's happening where there's been a bipartisan bill just to kind of continue government funding until they can hammer out the budget as they always do. And they'll then negotiate various cuts and et cetera, et cetera. And then in the House, there's this 
radical act of violence towards the budget where there's McCarthy and his far right opponents or ally, I don't know, the allies, their opponents are proposing absolutely delusional, nonsensical, unpassable versions of a continuing resolution that would cut government funds by 8% or potentially by 27% or in some cases, some programs by 80%. But these will never pass the Senate. It's just, it's all for show. What is going on here, John? What, what, it, and, and maybe different and when's questions. When's it going to be over? When's it going to be can over? Thank you. Yes, when yes. can we wake up? Well, I'm not sure when we can wake up because of the madness. I mean, as you say, I don't know. You know, in addition to the problems are Chris Van Cleef. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash Plus to become a member today.